Welcome to the radio ministry of Cedar Grove United Methodist Church. May God fill you and transform you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now for some music and then Pastor Brian Bully. Thank you. 
Good morning, everybody. Our gospel reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the 25th chapter. Jesus is speaking. He told a story. He said, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars with, along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy, and they fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, There's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! And then all the virgins woke up, and they trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Moses had led the people out of Egypt. Joshua and Caleb and ten other men had explored the promised land, reporting back about how wonderful the land was for agriculture. But the ten also reported back that the people who lived in the promised land were big and strong and were too tough to take on. Joshua and Caleb reminded everyone that God was with Israel. And so there was nothing to worry about. But the voices of the cowards, the voices of the ten scouts who did not think of what God could do, but only what they could do themselves, those voices triumphed in the assembly of Israel. And so God had the nation wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses eventually died, and Joshua took charge. He pulled together the nation. He organized them into a fighting force, and he crossed the Jordan River with a miraculous intervention from God. They went to Jericho. They walked around the city, followed God's commands, and the walls come tumbling down. And over the next few months and years, Israel defeated cities clear across the land. Finally, Joshua called them all together at Shechem, in the heart of what is today the West Bank, in the middle of the country. He reviewed the known history of the people descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, the man whose name was changed by God to be Israel. And Joshua said it was time for everybody to make a decision. He said, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord." 
You know, there comes a few times in every person's life when major decisions are called for. As a teenager, most young people have to make a decision whether or not they will choose to follow Jesus. Depending upon their background, this might mean that they get baptized. Or, if they were baptized at an early age, this may mean that they undergo confirmation and take on their belief in Jesus and choose to follow Jesus themselves. After the first of the year, we'll have a confirmation class for anyone 10 years or older, including adults, who want to formally hear, learn about the Christian faith and perhaps formally declare themselves to be followers of Jesus. Will you serve the Lord? Another decision time happens for most people when their children are born. Will they raise their children in church or will they raise their children without church? Is it just you or will your entire household serve the Lord? It will make a difference in both the lives of the children and the lives of the parents. To be honest, the decision often comes down to this. Do you want to be able to sleep in on Sunday mornings today? Or do you want to be able to fall asleep on weekend evenings in the future because you know your, your teenage children are not out doing questionable things? And a good decision time comes up at almost any age. It's a third decision. And this decision has to be made largely because of tent revival preachers starting a couple hundred years ago. You see, many people have come to be almost Christians through events like revivals, Billy Graham crusades, and evangelical events. And I use the term almost Christians because that's the term that John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, used. He used it to refer to the person who claimed to have chosen Jesus and been baptized, but yet that person did not make a substantial change in their life. Think about it. There are many, many people in churches who can point out that they've been baptized. People who one day came to the altar and asked Jesus into their hearts. People who have attended church regularly for months, years, and even decades. And if you ask them if they're Christian followers, they'll say, well, I believe in God. Some will say they've been baptized. Others will say they've been born again. But few will say that they know Jesus or say anything about Jesus Christ. Fewer still will show evidence that they're willing to do uncomfortable things for God and Christ. They are almost Christian. My daughter ran into these. She used to work at a restaurant in Atlanta and worked many Sunday lunch crowds as well as evenings during the week. She hated working the Sunday lunch crowd because the people were generally the most picky, hateful group of people who gave the lowest average tips of any time during the week. For a key mark of the almost Christian is an arrogant attitude, a general feeling of being better than the people around them, a tendency to require perfection of others without apologies or forgiveness. They do not understand how imperfect they are. The almost Christian generally protect, projects an attitude that says, I've joined the best club on earth, and you don't belong. The almost Christians, instead of being fishers of men and women, 
prefer only to be around fish that have been caught and cleaned and filleted by someone else. The almost Christian doesn't much like being around people who are not in the club. They say they love Jesus, yet they can't stop acting like the people of the world, and they sure don't like the people of the world. So the third decision that people need to make is to choose to become a true follower of Christ, to choose to move from the almost Christian, that stage, to becoming a true Christian, a move that may take years to do. And what is a true Christian? A true Christian loves God deeply and loves other people, particularly those people that the almost Christians don't like. The true Christian knows just how far off the tracks he or she had run in their life and how far from following Jesus she or he had gone. It's a contradiction, isn't it? The ones who know how far they are from following Jesus closely are the true Christians. The ones who think they've arrived are the almost Christians. The true Christians realize if it were not for God's miraculous intervention, they'd likely be living under the bridge or in a tent in the woods right now. They would be homeless, lonely, or living in a land like Gaza or Ukraine, moving from basement to basement, escaping bullets and mortar shells. The true Christian knows that the only decision they made of any positive consequence in this life was to choose to follow Jesus as best they could. They don't feel like they've been successful, but they feel like they know that they have to try to follow Jesus. And the true Christians try their best to live their lives to help others. They search out people to cheer up, to give wise advice to, to, to lift out of the dirt of despair and the swamp of bad decisions. They tip well, even for merely adequate service. And they're a joy to serve because their very conversation is a wonderful service back. The true Christian is always looking for ways to make life good for everyone they meet. The almost Christian is always looking for ways to demonstrate the superiority of being a Christian, as if they're trying to convince themselves more than the other, the other people. People want to be around true Christians, but they don't like the almost Christian. The true Christian has fallen in love with God, and that perhaps is the greatest difference between the true Christian and the almost Christian. How do we know that we're in love with God? Well, we have to follow the clues. My wife and I watch many mystery shows, and as you know, there are clues found at the scene of crimes that tell a smart investigator something about the persons who were at the crime scene. A bit of blood, a strand of red hair, perhaps a shoe print, or a bit of denim caught on a nail. Tire tracks tell us the vehicle was a Ford Ranger. A bit of paint left on a fence tell, says that the Ranger was blue and made between 20, 2010 and 2015. So what are the clues that we are moving from being almost Christians to being true Christians? One clue is in the words we use. It's a big clue. For words express the condition of our souls. When we look at the beauty of the hills around us, do we think nature has outdone herself today? Or do we think God makes things very beautiful today? 
when we're in a hurry and all five traffic lights are green for us, do we think, boy, I was lucky today, or do we think, well, God cleared my path? When we plan a dinner party for six people and only one shows up, do we get angry at those who are not there, or do we think, God must want me to speak with the one person who is there? An almost Christian rarely sees God acting in their life, while a true Christian is always seeing God in action. The veteran who walks among us today may be an almost Christian or a true Christian. What's the difference? When they tell their stories, when those stories are told about the veteran's time in the service, there are three ways those stories can be told. One way is, I was sent to do burial duty in Pennsylvania, so I was lucky and avoided combat. That's one way an almost Christian might tell the story. Or the almost Christian might say, I had a strong back because I was a laborer and dug ditches before the war, so they used that to send me to do burial duty in Pennsylvania. You see, either luck was the cause or the person's qualifications were the cause for why they never had to endure the horrors of combat. But the true Christian speaks differently. God knew that I would be important to my grandkids one day, so God arranged things, so I spent the war during burial duty in Pennsylvania, and that's why I'm a partner in a mortuary today. You see, a key difference between the almost Christian and the true Christian is the way we see the world. Is God intimately involved in your life, or is God a distant idea that we talk about here on Sundays? Do we pray in the name of a vague person, your will be done? Or do we use the name of Jesus to close our prayers? Do you see God's hand moving things in your life to help you or other people? Or do you believe that the world is driven by luck to help your great decisions that you have made? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You will know that your heart is beginning to purify when you begin to see God all around you acting in your life. There are definite effects in this life when a person chooses to see God in action around them, and it is a choice. Perhaps the biggest single change that happens is you begin to love God. It's impossible to love a distant force, a personality-free force like luck, and it's really hard to love someone who doesn't even know you exist. And that's why it's so difficult for many people to love God. They don't look well enough. They don't see clearly enough. They don't really believe that God cares about them, and so they don't really love God because they never see God. But if you begin to see God in the invisible hand that moves things in this world, then you will begin to love God, for you will see all the ways that God has changed things for you. All those ways that things could have gone a bit differently, even catastrophically differently, if God had not stepped in just for you. For you see, when we describe the world around us, we're actually telling people about ourselves and how we see the world. But if we change the way we speak, 
we eventually change the way we are and the way we see. And that invisible God that we can barely see becomes also real to us. And we fall in love with the God who cares about us because we see what God is doing for us. When we begin our Christian walk, most of us, you know, we want to know what are the rules? What must I do to be saved? What type of baptism works and what type doesn't work? Is baptism even necessary? What sins will send me to hell? What must I do to stay out of hell? Who is going to hell, which is another way of saying, am I going to hell? How bad can I be before I get in trouble with God? These are the questions of the new Christian. And then there are those who still want the rules, but move on to a little higher plane with their questions. I know that I'm saved, but what do I need to do now? How hard do I need to work? How much money do I need to give to the church? Do I really need to read my Bible every day? Uh, which Bible is a good Bible to read? But perhaps the real measure of whether you're going to remain an almost Christian or move on to being a real Christian is whether you've realized deep down inside that Christianity is about changing our focus, about moving from worrying about ourselves to worrying about helping others. And furthermore, it's about understanding that we didn't get here by ourselves, but it was through the active help of God and other people that we got here. And so we need to act like raw gems in the hands of a master jeweler who is God. Seth can tell you all about this. You know, if you think about what a jeweler does, he takes a raw gem, which may be a formless lump of diamond or a clunky piece of green emerald crystal, and then it must be cleaned. Rough pieces are gently polished off. The gem will probably need to be studied carefully and cut into pieces for the best value. Each facet of the crystal will need to be polished again and again. This is like your personality. God is advising you always about the polishing and the cutting, if you'll learn to listen to that still small voice within you. He'll put, he will put you in the polishing of a difficult employer. He'll cut you down to size by letting you see the limits of what you can do by your own strength and skills. And all the time, he will polish away the dirt and the grime if you will let God do this. And then the stone has to be set in a beautiful setting. And this is where the stone will achieve its greatest value. After you've had your rough edges polished off, you, you'll need a setting, a place where you can do the work that God has determined is best for you. We cannot do our best for God as long as God remains a distant, vague God that we do not see in action. In fact, we'll chase people away from ourselves and the church until we fall in love with God. The third decision that people make in their lifetimes after baptism or confirmation, after putting our children in church, is to decide to fall in love with God. You've seen many churches where most of the preaching is about the bad things people outside the church are doing. That only reinforces the idea of the good person's club, and it reinforces the bad name of Christians in the world. But the difference between the almost Christian club member 
And the true Christian is not the hours spent in manual labor in the church. It's not the hours spent in Bible study, although that does help. It's not even church attendance, although that also helps. It's the intentional choice made by the person to choose to look at the world through God-covered glasses. Have you ever looked at the design of so many flowers just set up the right size and way to require a bee or a fly to push against the pollen to get at the nectar? Have you ever noticed how you've been sent to different jobs that taught you things that were just perfect for something you'd need later in life? Have you ever noticed how God times things perfectly, giving you money the day before you need it, not three months before? Helping you to meet a new friend when you need that contact next week. Keeping you from a terrible accident because you mislaid your phone. You forgot it, and so you had to go back and get your phone. And that made you miss an accident. God is there paying attention to you in life. Because God has been with you since the beginning. So pay attention to what God is telling. What is God saying to you? And see what God is suggesting that you do, and look around and see him. In our reading from Matthew 25, Jesus tells the story of ten young women who were ready to meet the bridegroom and welcome him into the marriage hall. Five of them were well prepared and had planned for a long night, setting aside extra oil for their lamps. Five were foolish and did not plan ahead, so when the shout came that the bridegroom was arriving, they had to go and buy more oil for their lamps. And then when they returned, they found that they'd missed the party. The door was closed to them. And Jesus told this story. It's like us who await the return of Jesus. Are you ready? Have you studied and prepared for the return of Jesus? Have you learned to recognize the presence of God in this world? Or are you still an almost Christian who thinks of God as a distant, vague force, maybe with a name, but kind of vague? Will you be left outside the party in the dark? You know, Peter knew Jesus, and he knew that God was present with Jesus, and so Peter was able to walk on water with Jesus. Prepare now. Learn to love God and see God. Practice. Learn to love other people so that when Jesus returns, he'll say, I know you. We've been good friends for many years. Come on in to the party. Let's dance on water together. Let's pray. Holy Father, creator of heaven and earth, thank you for the love of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the love and the effects of you, Father, working on the earth where we can see what you're doing. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who whispers in our ear and guides us daily if we will listen and points out, hey, there's where God the Father is working. Help us to learn to love our friends and neighbors, family, our enemies, and most of all, help us to love you, Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Everyone needs compassion, love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on you.
forgiveness, kindness of a Cedar Grove United Methodist Church and Pastor Brian Boley would like to thank you for listening to last week's pre-recorded sermon. Join us live this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and on Facebook. We are located on Route 47, a mile and a half east off I-77, just across from WVU Parkersburg Campus. Donations may be mailed to Cedar Grove UMC, 168 Old Turnpike Road, Parkersburg, West Virginia, 26104. Or you can text the word GIVE to 1304-244-1903 or visit our website, cedargroveunitedmethodist.org and click on the GIVE tab. This will bring up a form where you can determine how much you would like to give. Thank you and God bless you in your life.